0: Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today, I wanted to talk to you about SSH and what I've been doing with it. Man, I bet you're excited already. I have been working on my MacBook in the Unix terminal, and I've been trying to figure out what SSH does. So I've kind of understood. I've seen some apps for it before on the App Store, which I'll get to in a second. And Now, I finally know what they're for. Shoot. Uh, but I, I couldn't do anything with it. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know, you know, why it was useful or, or necessary. But, uh, but now I kind of get it. And I'm starting to understand some of the cool administrative tools that you can sort of work with around SSH. But SSH is sort of the secure shell system. I guess, what was the other one? Telnet? Was it the, the non-encrypted version of it? But it was this version of, of logging into a host as a client what was it? a unix host like you can still do this with servers like your web server if you have a website or even bluehost i tried this out with bluehost you can ssh into bluehost and uh, like look at the files in your unix terminal on bluehost but you can log in as a client and then view that if you have uh, credentials and access it's really interesting how you can do it but i guess it was set up a long time ago it's amazing this kind of tools and power you can have with it i guess you can do something um, like uh similar to a vpn where you can get like uh, private traffic or you, you like you can make your network traffic private by making it appear as though it's like on or behind a router. So it's kind of interesting that you can do that, but I think it's like something like SSH tunneling where if I were out at a coffee shop or something, I could SSH into my home computer and then access the internet from that secure shell point, like through my home internet. So would it as though, the internet traffic was being routed through my home and then to me. And then it would be encrypted along that path so the intermediary, let's say like a coffee shop, wouldn't know anything about it. Super interesting. That's kind of how VPNs work too. Just starting to figure out some of this networking stuff. If you guys know about it, shoot me a message or something. Explain it to me. I have no idea what I'm talking about. You can see more of my work at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping, some cool stuff over there. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of fun. I like doing that sort of stuff. I like uh, kind of poking around. I want to get out there with the, uh, what was I saying? The, The metal detector. That's the wanna get out there with. I think that'd be kinda of cool. I was hearing there's a, a number of different things you can do with the metal detector, and it's pretty fun most of the time. In the spots that I've been out, the only thing I've found so far is like casings from, you know, ejected bullets that have been fired out of a rifle over in Eastern Oregon when I've uh I guess when someone else had been out there hunting or doing some shooting or whatever it is. And then I've kind of come along through a camp and found some uh some old shells and stuff laid out in the uh In the dirt over there in between the sagebrush. Uh, But that's about the the most that I've ever found is like a a cool thing. But I want to go out to the coast, see if I can find something fun and cool that's washed up onto the shore. I had some family that lived that over on the coast for for a long time. And, you know, when they kind of go out to the coast to do their walks and stuff. I think when you have more access to the coast, you're just out there more and they would kind of find some cool stuff that would wash up over the years. I think they had found like some things that seemed like they were off some Asian fishing boat or some uh, little buoys that would come in or little uh, like crab fishing things that would wash in from our boats or from other boats and stuff. And It'd be really cool. I don't know. It'd be fun to kind of find some of that stuff out on the beach. I think it'd be fun. I was looking at a couple other things that I thought would be kind of neat since it's uh, Christmas coming up soon and since my birthday had just passed. There's a few uh, a few kind of like everyday carry things that I was looking into and some of the brands that are sort of around that or what would kind of be a cool one to pick up. But I've uh, been looking into a few different pieces. One of them was pocket knives. I carry a pocket knife with me most of the time. I think before I talked about the Gerber Gator that I carry around. I think it's a about a four-inch blade. And it's a little bit more than a four-inch handle. It's sort of a full-size grip in the hand. I guess what I'm saying there is it, is it extends open to about eight and a half inches or so handle and blade as it's open. And then it's got the locking uh, back, which I like a lot more than kind of that finger release that you would press um, sort of on the, the inside of the blade to kind of push a little bit of metal out of the way so that the blade can kind of fold back and collapse in on itself. I don't really prefer those and I kind of uh, found at least like the cheaper blades that I've picked up that were like that to start to fail over time where that, that little metal springiness to it that sort of pushes in place uh, starts to kind of wear off or bend out a little bit and then after a while it wouldn't really lock in place. It would lock back enough to be there but then as soon as i put any pressure on it would Fold back in on itself and come toward my hand and my fingers and stuff while I was cutting. So that had happened, I think a couple or with a couple knives that I had that were like that a few times. So now, when I'm getting a folding pocket knife, I really try and avoid that style of it. There are a bunch of them that are like that, and there are a bunch of them that are really pretty cool. And I bet if you buy a higher end brand, or you know, like a better built knife, then you'd probably have better luck with it. But really, I prefer the the, the back that locks on it so like kind of i don't know maybe three quarters down toward the bottom of the, the handle there's going to be like a little metal bit that you'd press your thumb into and that kind of pulls up part of the tang of the knife lifts a locking release on the blade and then you're able to swing the hinge of the blade shut to collapse it fold it and then put it back in your pocket um, i like that kind of style a lot more than uh, than this other type that i was talking about but when i was looking around that's what uh, that's what I try to pick up with the Gerber Gator that I had. And I like the Gerber knives. Um I've had a couple variants of that style before. I like the kind of rubberized handle. Um and I like the price too. It's like 29 bucks. Or I think you can get them, I don't know, maybe like on the more expensive end for like 40 bucks. But these uh these Gerber Gators, the full size, and I think there's a mini. They're pretty good. Um kind of mid-range usable folding kind of pocket knives that you would have and i really like it a lot more than uh, some of like the kershaw stuff that i've had that's sort of at that lower end price point that's like below 20 dollars i've had those for about six months or so and then some of the some of those hex screws start to unwind on me and then all of a sudden i've got i've got a knife that's in like four different pieces washers and bits and stuff kind of all over and that's happened a couple times with those uh those uh sort of assembled knives i try and find some stuff that's like uh Got a certain type of construction on it that keeps it a little tighter together. The hex screws work pretty well. On the higher end pieces, those really do hold together really well over time. and They don't have to be dismantled or reassembled. But on some of those less expensive knives, unless you're doing some kind of more regular tool maintenance to keep those bolts tight, they do start to kind of work themselves out on you. And the steel of the blade, I haven't even gotten to that. Um, The steel of the blade changes like all the time or, well, I don't know, it doesn't change all the time, but there's a ton of different variations of quality knife steel that goes into these uh, these folding pocket knives or full-tang pocket knives. But uh, I was kind of looking into that a bit. Like, uh, I guess, like, what used to be the standard for hard knife steel back 30 years ago isn't anywhere near the same as it is now. Now there's a whole bunch of different variations of things that, that give you different benefits or or drawbacks. I guess it's like, and uh, the, there's like steel, but then there's steel that you add chrome into or that you add a certain amount of nickel into or that you add a certain amount of carbon into. And these different variants that are added into the metal give the, the steel some different properties. And that gives the, the, the edge, the blade, the sh- or, you know, the, the way that the sharpness of that blade reacts to different forces that makes it react differently. So some types of steel are more brittle but they, so they'll like crack if you start axing with it or, but that makes them like hard, I guess. And so that gives you like a stronger edge retention. So you can keep that edge sharp for a long time. But if it's a really durable type of steel, then maybe it's got a softness to it. And so if you start doing a lot of extended cutting with that sharp blade, it'll go dull on you faster and you'll have to re-sharpen the blade uh, and then it'll lose its sharpness maybe a little faster. But then there's also blades that will rust if they get wet. So if you got a blade that's really sharp and stays really sharp but rusts quickly when it gets wet at all, then that's like a pretty difficult knife to have around too. And so people kind of choose their knives for different things. I guess there's like boat knives or there's a a certain type of steel that's used for people that are doing a a lot of stuff on the ocean. Like when they're exposed to a lot of salt water, they uh, use a... It's not... um, is it like an H1 steel? That doesn't sound quite right. But there's a certain type of steel that they have that's uh, that will not rust, but is like really hard and holds like a really strong edge. And then there's a whole bunch of different variations of hard steels, you know, like steels that have like some stronger amount or, or I guess tougher resistance to whatever elements they're going to be exposed to. So the, the Gerber Gator that I have, that's a, that's a D2 steel. And I guess you can look these steels up. They're going to be probably more informative. Some some chart online will probably be more informative than uh, than my breakdown of stuff. But they'll kind of get into the, the chemical compounds of what makes these steels different and what makes the, the knife blade uh, better or worse for the function that you're going for. But really, there is like a tier of not really quite good enough for most things. And then where people and knife collectors are kind of trying to pick into uh for like higher quality knives. And I think it's uh it's a good litmus test for how high quality your knife is. So there's some um, there's some good steels that make inexpensive knives. Um so I think like for like Victor Knox uh Swiss Army knives you're looking at like a three sixteenth steel, which I think now is like a pretty low grade kind of kind of steel. Even for a lot of buck knives, I think it's like the four 416th or something like that. Or, yeah, it's a little more. Um, for I think for Leatherman's too, it's sort of in that area. Then I think if you get into the the SA or Rat 3 knives, you're looking at 1095 steel, which I think is like a higher carbon steel. Uh, then I think you get like D2 steel, like this Gerber Gator is. That's sort of in the same zone. There's also this other stuff, This I think Chinese made steels that are... I think it's like 7CR. I got a knife around here somewhere that has it, but it's uh, 7CR, then there's 8CR and 9CR. And it's got like a a couple other letters after it too, but I think the first couple is like a 7, an 8, or a 9. I think that's kind of to the degree that it is good, let's say for this, or it's like tough steel or whatever it is. But I think 7 is sort of the lower grade, kind of average grade knife blade steel. 8 is pretty good in comparison to a lot of stuff. And 9 is sort of more of a premium and inexpensive uh, steel option made by the Chinese manufacturers. So I have a couple knives that are made with that. There's also another steel called os 8 I found that around uh, a number of times, and I think that's in some higher-end knife blade pieces too. Uh, Also used by some higher-end knife manufacturers, um, I think with some stuff from... Benchmade, and some stuff from Spyderco I've seen in the Yoss 8. And let me pull it out here. I was actually kind of thinking about Spyderco and Benchmade and the Columbia River Knife and Tool. Um, Let's see, what are those? Columbia River Knife and Tool, Benchmade. There's another one I'm trying to think of. It's... uh, it's a port that's a, like an Oregon based knife company. Yeah, I didn't know there I didn't realize there were so many Oregon based knife companies up around this area. But uh then uh then there's also a That's another uh, knife manufacturer that I was uh I was looking at. I think those are Japanese. Uh, but I picked up a Spyderco knife recently. Those are a lot more expensive than uh you know, kind of like a lot of the average run of the mill pocket knives that you'd probably pick up in a lot of store or you know, like a lot of more basic um supermarket-style source. I don't know why you're getting a hunting knife at a supermarket, but not so much a hunting knife, but really just, like, useful folding knives that are good pocket knife tools. Uh, but I picked up the Co knife, and I definitely noticed the, uh, the difference in some of the quality of it, uh, just in kind of the way that the construction is, the sharpness of the blade, the way that it works. And this is, I think, um, VG10 steel on the blade. And then it's got... Some sort of like uh, what polycarbonate nylon handle. Wow. Whatever that is, you know. But uh, but the the handle works really well. Then I was also looking at G10, which is another handle material that I see listed out there on a number of knives. And that seems to be sort of one of the higher-end knife handle options. I see that on like the higher-end Columbia River Knife and Tool M16 knives. And I see that as an option for uh, the nicer, like Benchmade knives. I was looking at some Benchmade knives, like the Griptilian. I think that has a G10 handle option. Uh, also the, the Benchmade bug out. I was looking into that knife. Um, and that I think has a, a G10 handle too, but I think that kind of provides sort of a kind of a powdery grip almost to it. I think it's another, uh, kind of composite material, but it's got uh, a good grip on it, so that you you can still kind of uh, maintain a, a handle even into sort of wet or slippery conditions. Another knife I had used my on the handle, uh, which is I think layered. I tried to do this before my on my own, and I've seen someone make it themselves before too. But I think it's um, it's like layered and then sanded down fiberglass and linen or fiberglass and denim or like resin and denim or something like that but i've seen uh, people kind of like layer they would like soak they kind of penetrate just like uh you take like a, a bunch of like little sheets of say like linen in this case but something kind of with like a thatched texture uh, but you take a bunch of sheets of this and then you penetrate that with uh, fiberglass resin and then lay that down and then add another layer of it, lay that down and add another layer and lay that down. And then you clamp all of that together and then let it cure. That makes this kind of like real compressed brick of these stacked up pieces of fabric that are kind of interlaced together with each other. And then they're now fused together and kind of frozen in place with this, uh, this fiberglass resin into like sort of this sort of solid block. And then what you're able to do is saw right through that and then you have this kind of uh, solid and grippable, sandable material that you can kind of scrape down and shape into whatever kind of size or shape piece you want. So I have some scales to a full tang pocket knife over here that has uh, micarta handles and I think it's kind of a cool handle type. It works well for uh, for some of the stuff. But there's also like a lot of other options out there, or it's that's a, something I thought about it when I got it, and sort of what I think about like the G10 uh, handle stuff too is that there's just like a lot of handle options out there, and uh, that's kind of the tricky thing too is like um, like I look around it, I don't know how to get into it really, but like I look around at, like um, bushcrafting videos, you know, I might have talked about this before even, or I've had the thoughts before too about uh, I like bushcrafting or like kind of the idea of a lot of like outdoorsmanship stuff and a lot of like outdoors. Uh, travel and use of the landscape and I think kind of have an understanding of that is really cool. Uh, but the bushcrafting stuff sort of has some little twists or like sort of limitations to it that I think sometimes make it a little, a little goofy. But uh, part of the idea is you have like a big knife almost close to a machete that you use for everything from batoning down two-inch thick trees to... I guess, like, just building a trap to hunt small animals to, to just straight hunting or combat or whatever it is. But it's supposed to be this kind of all-purpose wilderness tool. Those are cool knives, and I do have a couple of those in that size range. I like the 4-inch size probably most a lot of the time. But for a lot of cool stuff, it's like the 5-inch the knife, like a 5-inch full-tang knife. It's really cool if you're going to try and do some of that stuff. But really at that point, or kind of my thinking around it is like, that's almost too all purpose of a tool that you're trying to apply a knife to, you know, like uh, you don't really need maybe to always do that sort of stuff with a knife. Now it's cool when you understand that to use a knife and then you can really build out stuff while you're in the woods or while you're in the backcountry that you didn't have to bring in with you. So that is like a cool kind of survivalist mechanism, not even survivalist, but just when you're in the woods um, there's a way that you can build out a lot of stuff that you would maybe think that you would need to bring with you. Just kind of a lot of like structural stuff that you can kind of set up or or make some makeshift elements with if you know how to do some simple things with a knife. And I've heard of a uh, of like these practice these practice systems called uh, try sticks. You could probably look that up, like a like I don't know a bushcraft try stick or something like that. But it's this bushcraft skills thing where go through with a twig, you know, like kind of a two foot long stick that's about an inch and a half in diameter. And then you you try out a bunch of these different cut maneuvers on it. So you kind of like a flat cut, a scooped cut, uh, sort of like a pointed carve or to make like a divot in something or make, you know, just like all these different little pieces that you kind of go through and do. And I guess there's like uh, some little system of those that you can use those pieces on a stick as different tools to make you know, different, I don't know, different things. Who knows what they are. I've seen like snowshoes made. I've seen tables made. I've seen um, like fire pit cooking kitchens made. (laughs) I've seen a few different pieces and stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see what people can kind of throw together. Really, a lot of the time, I think what it was used for as a plan is what you see expressed by the bushcrafters is you got a big knife and then you whack down a chunk of a tree. You make a a stand to hold a pot over a fire to purify your water, and then you make sort of an A-frame to throw your tarp over so that you have your dry shelter. Now, I think both of those are really one of the least effective means of providing that thing in the outdoors. So like, you know, I I don't know how to really say it now, but it's like, uh, it's good to know how to start a fire and it's good to know how to stay out in the wilderness if you only have a tarp. Also, it's good to bring a tent and a sleeping bag and it's good to bring a jet boil and some fuel and a lighter. And those two things really like cut down on the amount of weird sort of dangers that you would have from exposure or risk of bad water or whatever it is. So a lot of the time, What I'm thinking about trying to do some outdoor stuff is how to like cut down on a lot of the extra work or the extra danger um, of some of those risks that you would have to sort of put yourself out into if you're trying to drink unpurified water through a sort of haphazardly made heavy can over a fire pit for an hour or two or whatever it is or staying under a tarp when you have way better and less expensive survival gear or, you know, like uh, tent hunting, camping gear, backpacking gear available to you. Um, so I think that those are kind of the options to sort of steer into it. So that kind of brings me to, well, what is a knife and what do you do with a knife? And so for bushcrafting, you're supposed to like build everything that you would go camping with. And I kind of think, well, maybe that's not really what I use a knife for, uh, or what a lot of people use a knife for. And I, I've seen it kind of, uh, kind of more clearly expressed that like your knife or like a, you could have a couple different knives, but it's cool to have a knife that's really just for cutting and kind of keeping it as sort of a, a, a more sacred discipline to keep that knife sharp as something that can really do an effective job uh, cutting cutting into flesh if you need to do some hunting stuff or cutting ropes or cutting parts of whatever you're trying to put together out in the outdoors or whatever it is. And so I think that's kind of like some of the interesting stuff about, uh, about doing some knife preparation stuff. And there's a lot to get into with sharpening and different sharpening stones. And some, some thoughts that I have about some sharpeners and sharpening stuff that I want to get into too, but I don't know, that kind of might wrap it up there for, uh, for this part of the podcast. And I'll probably come back in with a part two of things to do with your pocket knife that, uh, that are useful when you're doing some outdoor stuff. And I guess I could bring it around the photo stuff too. Kind of like what I'm saying is when I'm traveling light and I'm outside in sort of more of my normal circumstances, like a two And a half to three-inch folding pocket knife really gets by uh, in almost every circumstance that I've needed. And I really don't need that big of a knife. I really just need a small amount of that blade. Or, you know, I need a small blade to be really sharp. And I think with that, you can be really effective. Like with a scalpel, you know, you can go through and do like a lot of significant and proper work with just a scalpel. And it doesn't necessarily mean that a, a bigger or more broad or more thick blade is going to be a superior tool to just really the act of cutting and slicing or the act of like trying to chop into something that you're uh, you're trying to do with a, a pocket knife when you're carrying it around out in the woods with you you can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com you can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to Help me out and participate in the value-for-value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. But yesterday, I took off on a drive. I went up the McKenzie River, and I'm trying to uh, go up to a few spots and then develop more photographs just from, from that location. Uh, or, you know, try trying to work on some stuff there. And uh, And it was good, though. It was cool to, to get a, a couple of minutes to uh, try and work on some longer photographs. Really nothing stellar from that location. But part of what I'm noticing is you really need more... Uh, m- more times in your life when you 're up to bat or when you're you're there when you 're at the place when you 're at a day of work all that 's kind of to say the same thing but when you 're participating when you 're out and doing it and uh, i 'm trying to to develop that more where uh where it 's just oh I was out taking photos four times today instead of one time you know this week or something so um, I think it 's just the 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 your personal ability to cultivate those situations where you get to take photographs, that's almost really what it seems to be uh, to work as a photographer is to cultivate the next time you're going to be able to take photographs and uh, to, to try and cultivate that in a rapid succession so that you compound that and, uh, and really make efficiency or an efficient use out of your time but I, I think about that a lot it was cool going up yesterday I was working with the the Sony a7r stuff uh, as much as I could and I was trying to work on some long exposure stuff sort of mapping or matching the uh, like the river and the, the rocks of the shore or uh, some of the stuff on the far end of the of the, the lake that was kind of cool to to sort of work with a little bit but um, but I try and I'm trying to work uh, on a few of those a little, I don't know, slower tripod shots, let's say, but some photographs where you're kind of getting into a situation that's a landscape and you're trying to be just a little bit more patient and try out a couple different options and then, you know, wait for the light to come in a little better. And, uh, that's a, that's a few more of the techniques in the fine art photography side that, uh, that I really like, but I don't really get to express or get into as much, especially in the product photo side or the event photo side that, uh, I end up working in most of the time. So, um, it's cool, though. I mean, I've been pretty happy uh, trying to get out and do some photo stuff, and uh, it was really nice getting out and uh, trying to put some stuff together for myself, but uh, I don't know. It's good kind of working some of those ideas out. I'm trying to take more photos of myself, too. I noticed that as I go back through my library. I just completed um, trying to cut down a lot of the photos over the last, like, 10 or 15 years or so into a collection of maybe some of the best, and some of the best versions of the file itself, too. It seems... Almost like a silly idea, but what ends up happening is you you end up losing over time the the best um, raw file that you have of that image if you 're not careful right like if you edit the image or you resize the image for the you know that 's the version that ends up going on social media a lot of the times is a, is an image that 's smaller than three megabytes, and uh, a lot of the time three megabytes is really going to be a, a downsized compressed jPEG image that I put together. And over time, what I've noticed is that a few of these pieces that are maybe some of my favorite photographs, the the version available that I can find right now, that's this JPEG version. So I'm trying to go through and and clean that stuff up. And it seems like I've done uh, a good bit of the start of that. But the next part, really, is produce. It's really get out and try and be in places to make photographs that are new for the year of 2018. I need to be producing the files and then uh, getting that work product out. I need to be able to, you know, finish it, edit it, and publish it in a way that's uh, that's effective, you know, if, if I'm going to bother to say that I'm a media creator or I'm a photographer, any of that stuff. So um, so it's been good kind of getting out. There's uh, the McKenzie River Drive. There's been a couple other uh, deals, like out to the Deschutes River. I'll get into that on a podcast, some stuff out on the, the coast that was cool, some stuff up uh, near the, the tulip farm uh, in Woodburn. All that stuff's starting to come together, and I have a few ideas for the rest of April, too, that might involve that, but... On the other news, I think I'm dropping Hootsuite. I've been working with Hootsuite for a couple years, and uh, I don't really feel like I'm getting the value out of it that I need. It, it, it's costly, actually, is is a big part of it. It uh, it's like a monthly bill. It's probably more than Netflix is a month, but uh, but what I need to do is is kind of transition over to whatever other ideas that are out there for scheduling posts on some of these platforms and i think that's what i'll be able to do in a pretty effective way is try and put a little bit more time into these platforms specifically to schedule out these posts for a business page or for whatever it is but i think i can do that within facebook uniquely and i think i can do that from a few of these other platforms too and i just don't use enough of the other features associated with hootsuite um, to to really interact with my my social demographic that much, um, I use like the platform most of the time to do that. But Hootsuite's a, a a mechanism I use to try and publish to multiple places at once. And maybe now, maybe a couple years later, there's some alternatives or some competitors that uh, that offer some of the features that I was looking for when I first got into the the Hootsuite pattern and stuff. So it was cool to try for a while. But really, what I noticed uh, overarchingly is that uh, it really They haven't regenerated a lot of their interface, and so a lot of the things that were glitchy and and buggy problems years ago when I started using it, they're still the same kind of glitchy, buggy problems. And really, it's... you know, it, it's it's the location of the problem is always in the upload module, which is really the only thing I use for the service. So, I just got smart and I decided to quit that and jump ship and go to some other service. There's a few. There's a free option of Hootsuite. Maybe I'll continue to use that. That that is three social media accounts is what it shows. There's probably some other uh, limitation to it. And I know there's another service called Buffer that I had used in the past. And I think I might check them out again and see if uh, if there's an opportunity to. Um, to use that interface to do some buffer stuff here on out. But, uh, but yeah, if anybody is super curious, that's how I, I sneak in some of the photo stuff that I try and put up on, on uh, social media across the board, trying to make it a little easier on myself. I have all these photos, and I'm uh, trying to organize them and then write captions for them in bulk and then put them up online if I can. But, yeah, so it's going okay. You know, it's, uh, it's always kind of a process trying to get some of the media stuff together. And, and really, like I was talking about, outside of media and YouTube channels and other things like that, what I'm really trying to focus on in 2018 is photographs. Am I making photographs? Am I getting to places to make photographs? Am I wrapped out in these other side responsibilities that really aren't going to compound and benefit me uh, when it comes back to my main goal here. So I don't want to dilute myself in places where, uh, you know, where I just can't really be my best. Uh, there's like a, an amount of diminishing return that seems to happen. So I've kind of thought about that a little bit, but, uh, but the need to make content and to make stuff and to produce, I mean, that's, you know, that's what media creation is. So Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman photo podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. dot com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other other outbound sources. Some some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. dot com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.